We'll hear argument next in 05-1575, Schreiro versus Landrigan. Mr. Catani. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Ninth Circuit's rejection of a reasoned state court factual determination and decision is improper under any deferential standard of review, and it is particularly improper under the highly deferential standard of review review required under the AEDPA. This morning I'd like to try to develop three, three points. First, the state's court's factual finding that Landrigan instructed his attorney not to present any mitigating evidence was not an unreasonable finding and, in fact, is the most logical interpretation of the record. Although Landrigan now argues that the record does not show whether his decision not to present mitigation evidence was knowing or voluntary, that is not a claim that was ever developed in state court. He never alleged in his state post-conviction proceeding that that, his decision to do that was, was not knowing or voluntary. Secondly, an evidentiary hearing is unwarranted in this case. May I ask about the first point? Does the Constitution require that it be known, knowing voluntary? It, it would require that it, that it would be knowing and voluntary, so yes. the record showed that he didn't get, there wasn't the procedure followed to normally waive a constitutional right. Wouldn't the district court be able to reexamine that? Well, there, there's no colloquy requirement uh, for a defendant to waive presentation of mitigation. And I think it would have been enough if the defendant or defense counsel had simply said, my, uh, if the attorney had said, my client has instructed me not to present any mitigating evidence. And, and that, that would be adequate. Uh, if a defendant chooses to, to make a claim that his, his, his waiver was not knowing or voluntary, the burden would shift to him to do that in a post-conviction proceeding. Yeah. And he, he did not do that in this case. How, how would he make such a claim in this case where, where in open court he was asked by the judge, right, with nobody twisting his arm, whether it was the case that he did not want any mitigating evidence introduced? And he said, right, yes, that's correct. I, I agree, Your Honor. It would be very difficult for him to make that argument, and, and I suspect that's why the argument was not raised in the, in the state post-conviction proceeding. Well, we, you, I, I don't know if you got to the third point you were going to make. You were outlining three different points. But it, it seemed to me that from the very start, um, what happens is that um, you and, and uh, your, your brother for the respondent are uh, talking past each other. You wanted to talk to us about the, the adequacy of the state court finding. Uh, the respondent says, uh, what, what we, what we, all we want is, is a hearing in the district court. And those are two different issues. We want a hearing in the district court, i.e., so that we can show the findings are, 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 are in, in, insubstantial or incorrect. Those, it seems to me, are two different issues, and I, and I, I, I sense the briefs talking past each other on this point. Did you see, see the same thing? Yes, I did, Your Honor, and, and I think the reason for that is, in our view, an evidentiary hearing is, is not necessary because the, the factual finding by the state court obviates the need for one. An evidentiary hearing would be developing evidence that would never have been presented. Given, given this factual finding, the state court is, in effect, saying no matter what counsel might or might not have developed, it would not have been presented at sentencing because this defendant specifically 
instructed his attorney not to present any mitigating evidence. In, in your view, what is the standard for when the district court may hold an evidentiary hearing? I know there's an element of discretion in it. Uh, the district court can order an evidentiary hearing if the defendant has been denied an opportunity to develop relevant facts necessary to resolve a colorable claim in state court. And I think here uh, the defendant fails on, on two different points. First, that, that's, the, that's the only time the district court can hold a hearing? Well, it has to be through no fault of his own, and if the facts were not developed in state court, certainly it's the petitioner's obligation, a, a defendant's obligation to present these claims in state court. And the only the reason for Yes, it seems, it seems if he doesn't do that, then that's a bar. But if he has done that, uh, when can he ask for a further hearing? Well, but that, that's the point here. He has not done that. He, he did not attempt to develop facts, or he was not precluded from developing facts that would be relevant to a resolution of his ineffective assistance claim. And if I could, Your Honor, the, the, the two different parts of that question. First, the, the facts are not relevant. Uh, the facts that are, he's seeking to develop in an evidentiary hearing is this additional, this mitigation that should have been developed. If, in fact, his, his avowal that he did not want any mitigation to be presented is accurate, then these other facts are not relevant. No, but isn't, isn't that pro- the, the problem with your argument? Because your argument assumes, and I think you said this quite candidly a moment ago, uh, that once there has been a finding that he informed the court that he did not want mitigation evidence presented, that, in effect, is a matter of, uh, binds him as a matter of law for all time. Uh, and what he is saying here is, look, if I had known that there was this kind of mitigating evidence, as opposed to what was uh, proffered to the court uh, at the end of the, of the trial, in fact, I would not have made that waiver, uh, if you want to call it that. I would not have made that representation to the court. Uh, and what I want is, is an evidentiary hearing to show that, to show that, in fact, when I said to the court, no mitigating evidence. I didn't mean this. And, and he wants a hearing for that. The only way it seems to me that you can properly win on, on, the, on the issue that he thus raises is exactly the way that I think you, you, you said a moment ago, that once there is a finding that he made a statement, whatever its predicate, a statement that I don't want any mitigating evidence presented, that is the end of the issue as a matter of law. My question is, do you have any authority for that? Simply the, the, the AEDPA 2254E, I don't have a specific case uh, that also uh, would go to directly to that point. Uh, Your Honor, I would Justice also — Justice Souter's question highlights some uh, ambiguity in the Ninth Circuit opinion, for me anyway. Do you understand the hearing that they've directed to be on the waiver question, or is the hearing that they've directed on the alleged mitigation uh, uh, evidence that he now wants to present? It seems to me the hearing is directed at presenting all of the mitigation evidence that he now wants to present. Doesn't it have to go to both? Because, I mean, he's saying, look — uh, first, I want to show that there's a certain kind of mitigation evidence uh, that was not proffered, that I didn't have in mind, that I wouldn't have objected to. And he then wants to proceed uh, with respect to his inadequacy of counsel claim 
uh, based also on the existence of this kind of evidence that counsel didn't look to. There's a dual purpose, I thought. I, I would agree with that, but you I wouldn't agree with it. I thought that the Ninth Circuit had been very clear that it did not agree with the district court's determination that, that he had waived mitigating evidence. I thought the Ninth Circuit simply disagreed with that finding and remanded for a hearing on the, on the mitigating evidence. Yes. Isn't yes, that did. so? Didn't I? I mean, I thought that's one of the reasons the case was here, that the Ninth Circuit simply smacked down a district court factual finding that he had, he had waived uh, uh, any mitigating evidence. Isn't that what happened? That's correct, Your Honor. So it wasn't remanding for a hearing on whether he had waived mitigating evidence. It made the determination that he had not waived it and then remanded for uh, investigation into what that mitigating evidence would be. I don't know that it's completely clear as to what the Ninth Circuit is saying can be developed and how that evidence can be used. Well, it's, it's clear at least that they disagreed with the finding of the district court that there had been a waiver, no? That, that's right, Your Honor. And I well, think it's that clear that they disagreed that the finding was necessarily dispositive. Is anything clear beyond that? I mean, I guess I'm having the same, I'm raising the same question that the Chief Justice did. What, about the ambiguity of what the court did. And, and there's no question that they found that the, the, tri- the state trial court's finding with respect to waiver or whatever we want to call it uh, uh, was not necessarily dispositive. I don't think it's clear that they found anything beyond that, but correct me if I'm wrong. Well, the Ninth Circuit ordered an evidentiary hearing to right. allow him to develop whatever mitigation uh, he, he's proffered in federal court. Right. But, but that could have, as we said a moment ago, that could have a dual purpose. One, to show the, uh, in effect, the, the inadequacy uh, or the non-dispositive character of the state court's finding, and two, to show relief uh, for inadequate assistance of counsel. And, and the question here is, the, the immediate question is, what exactly did the state court find with respect to, uh, sorry, what exactly did the Ninth Circuit find with respect to the state court finding? Uh, and there's no question that the Ninth Circuit assumed that the state court finding was not necessarily dispositive. But I don't know that it's clear that it went beyond that. And that's, that's where perhaps you could help me if I'm wrong. Well, the, the Ninth Circuit clearly held that the state court's determination of the facts was unreasonable. And that's the problem with the decision, because if the determination of facts was reasonable, it obviates the need for any further evidentiary hearing. Well, on, 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 on the waiver point, uh, let's assume that uh, this case had not come, in, come here and you had gone back to the district court uh, pursuant to the order of the Ninth Circuit. Surely you would have taken the position, or you could have taken the position if the evidence developed that yeah. way, uh, that he really knew or should have known about all this mitigating evidence and he waived you certainly could continue to take that position in the district court. Yes. And the district court would say, I now have a, a more full a factual uh, record, and I make the finding that there was knowing waiver or that there wasn't. Yes, but the, the point that we've tried to make is that he was allowed an opportunity to develop his claim about whether his whether he made that statement and whether he intended to instruct his attorney not to present any mitigating evidence. He submitted an affidavit where he said, if my counsel had told me there was this evidence of a genetic predisposition to violence, I would have allowed that to be presented. The, the court, there, there was no need for an evidentiary hearing because the court simply accepted, accepted as true that, that Landrigan would have provided that testimony. Well, and how, could the, how could the district court on remand find 
that there was a valid waiver, when the Ninth Circuit says on A-17, uh, appendix to the petition, for all the foregoing reasons, Landrigan has not waived the right to assert a claim for ineffective assistance of counsel. I, I think you're correct. The Ninth Circuit has specifically found that the determination of facts was unreasonable and found that, that Landrigan has established a colorable claim of ineffective assistance. And has not waived. Not that the district court was, didn't have enough evidence before it. It says for the foregoing, Landrigan has not waived the right to assert a claim for effective assistance. So wh- how can you possibly say that that question is still open? Well, the district I, court has to a- accept that he hasn't waived. And what it's sent back for is for all of the facts that show, that show he had ineffective assistance of counsel. May, may I ask this question? It seems to me that well, there, there are two separate parts to the, the waiver issue. One, did he intend to say, I don't want to put on an, any mitigating evidence? But then the second part of the question is, was that statement made knowingly and voluntarily, just as a guilty plea or something like that has to be? So is it enough for you to say it's clear what he intended, or is it also part of your burden to say that that intent was expressed in a way that was knowing and voluntary and complied with the rule that applies to waivers of constitutional rights? I think it's clearly enough simply to say that, as I indicated, even if it had just been an avowal by the attorney that this defendant has instructed me not to present mitigating evidence, that that would be enough. Is that a sufficient waiver without inquiring as to whether it was a knowing and intelligent waiver that he knew what he could put in and so forth and so on? Yes, it is, Your Honor. I think to the extent that the defendant wants to raise that, he can raise that in a state post-conviction proceeding, and he should make that type of argument uh, in the post-conviction proceeding. And that's not what he did here. An analogous situation is that it came up in a case that the defense, the uh, Landrigan has cited, Iowa versus Tovar. Uh, and this, this court expressly noted that the, the time to raise a claim, that, that case involved whether it was a counsel, a, it was a decision to waive counsel at a plea proceeding. And this court noted that the time to raise that is in a post-conviction proceeding and that the burden shifts to the defendant uh, to raise that issue. And here, if you look at the, the petition for post-conviction relief, if you look at the affidavit that Mr. Landrigan submitted, there, there's nothing in there that suggests that I did not understand what I was doing when I instructed my counsel not to present mitigation. Uh, I, I did not understand the concept of mitigation. There's nothing in there that suggests that. So I, I, I isn't, was, isn't there something to say? Isn't he saying implicitly, I didn't have this kind of evidence in mind, if I had been aware of this kind of evidence, I wouldn't have given that instruction. So he is, it seems to me, implicitly saying, well, my waiver was not knowing in the sense that I understood there was this kind of evidence and intended to preclude its introduction. Isn't that clear? It's clear that he is saying that I would have permitted one type of mitigating evidence. But that's the same thing. Isn't that the same way, way of saying that to that extent my waiver was not knowing? He, he's raised it to that extent as to that particular piece of mitigation, and the, yeah. and the trial court is expressly saying, I disbelieve you when you say that you would have allowed presentation of that mitigation. And he is saying, if you will give me a hearing, district court, I will try to demonstrate to you while, why the state court's finding on that point was unreasonable. 
The State Court made that finding based on its observation of me at trial and, 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 and at the sentencing phase. But it didn't give me uh, a, a, a further chance to develop my evidence uh, on post-conviction. And I want a hearing to develop that evidence in front of you, Federal District Court, in order to prove that the State Court's finding in light of that evidence was unreasonable. Isn't, the, isn't it correct that that's what he's asking for now? He is, Your Honor, but I would suggest that there is no further evidence that was presented that he was attempting to present in State Court regarding whether his how, waiver how was we, knowing or voluntary. How do we know that? Uh, we know that because of the, the affidavit that he submitted. And he, he's required to submit an affidavit uh, to establish a colorable claim. And, and he's, in, he's required to allege in his post-conviction petition that his waiver is not knowing or voluntary. The, the burden is on the defendant. Well, you may, I, I don't think you mean this, but you, you, you're not arguing that he just omitted the magic words, not knowing involuntary. Well, I don't think, I don't think he just omitted them. I think he was not raising that claim. No, but we, I thought a second ago you, you, you admitted that to, to a degree he was, because he is saying implicitly, if I had known about this kind of mitigating evidence, I wouldn't have waived. Therefore, my waiver was, as to this, not a knowing waiver. He, he raised that as to that one aspect of mitigation. But it would have been very simple for him, a simple matter for him to argue, I didn't understand the whole concept of mitigation. I didn't understand what I was Look, doing. Look, it would have been a better affidavit. It would have been better pleading. We, we can stipulate to that. But is there — I don't see that there's any serious question that he is arguing right now that as to this kind of evidence — had I known about it, I wouldn't have waived, and therefore I, I shouldn't be precluded uh, from, from getting it in now. Uh, and, and if there's no question about that, then, then I think we're just fighting about words. Well, I think the issue was resolved by the, the State Court's factual determination that Landrigan was not credible, even in making that assertion that I would have allowed presentation of genetic predisposition of and, my And he my says life. in the district — he says in the district court — I want a hearing to show that I was credible, so credible that the, that the State Court finding should be seen as an unreasonable resolution of a factual issue. I want a hearing. That's all he's asking for, isn't it? I would just suggest that there, there's no further evidence other than putting Landrigan on the stand to say. Well, that's pretty good evidence, isn't it? I mean, he may be a believable witness on this point. I don't know. Well, I don't think there was any need for an for for the trial court to put Landrigan on the stand, having already presided over Landrigan's trial and sentencing. If he, wants, if he wants a hearing on that, we'd have to reverse the Ninth Circuit, right? Because the Ninth Circuit held that he didn't waive That's right. his claim. That's right. Uh, uh, the part of the opinion that Justice Alito quoted on page A-17. That, that's right, Your Honor. And I, I, I think that's why this case should be relatively straightforward. Because the Ninth Circuit uh, — the Ninth Circuit's finding that the State Court unreasonably found that, that Landrigan expressly instructed that his attorney not present any mitigation, given that, that's the problem with the Ninth Circuit's opinion. Everything else builds on top of that. If, if that's an incorrect holding, then the, the rest of the, the ruling is, is incorrect. Well, if, it's in, it can, if it is incorrect, if we don't know precisely what he meant by the words he said. Uh, why doesn't that argue even more strongly for a hearing? At the hearing, he wants to introduce, doesn't he, his step-parents or the foster parents, school teacher, 
the various others, and he'll say, anyone who listens to those people will see that I had the most horrendous upbringing anyone could have, the worst you've ever heard. And my argument is that if only my lawyer had looked into this, at that moment in the trial, he would have said in the sentencing proceeding, look what I can present for you. And if he had done it and told me that, anyone would have said, of course, present it. And I want a chance to show that that's true of my case. Now, why shouldn't he have a hearing on that? No hearing was given him in the state court. Well, the problem with that, Your Honor, is that he didn't ask for, for a hearing to present testimony from, for example, his his biological mother and his ex-wife, who could have presented the very yeah, type you of mean evidence. In the state court, he didn't. In state court, in the well, trial. I mean, is the requirement such that when you ask for a hearing in a state court on a general matter, I would like to show through a hearing that he gives a whole lot of affidavits of the kind of thing he's going to produce, that then the state says no, and you go into federal court and say. I'm roughly going to do the same thing. I have a few extra witnesses. Uh, some of the people say some extra things. No, you can't do that. Well, there is a requirement in state court that you plead with specificity what type of claims you're raising in a post-conviction procedure. Well, didn't he say mm-hmm. my claim is ineffective assistance? Ineffective assistance. Yes, he because didn't. he didn't investigate to discover the horrendous circumstances in which I was raised. And had he done it, he would have found roughly this kind of thing. And I would like to show that he should have done that because it would have changed the result. Well, his argument at state court was not that he didn't investigate that. His argument in the post-conviction proceeding was he could have presented that through some other witnesses. The, his argument in, at the trial, at the post-conviction That's not what I understood his argument that he wants to raise to be. In his affidavit, it's a different argument. It's the biological component of violence. Look, my grandfather was convicted, my father was convicted, and so the mitigating evidence he wants to present at sentencing is that I'm biologically predetermined to commit crime. The criminal gene argument, which is the only one. Which is certainly an ambiguous argument to present in mitigation uh, at a sentencing hearing. Certainly, and that that is the main point I'm trying to make, is that that was the only thing that he was asserting in his post-conviction proceeding was that I would have liked to have raised this uh, this argument that I'm genetically predisposed to violence. The rest of the argument, I think, would have been frivolous because it was so obvious that he had restricted, he had limited his counsel's, uh, restricted his counsel from presenting the very type of evidence that, that we're talking about now, this other type of evidence. I thought all that evidence was basically before the district court anyway. Didn't the district court know about all of that when it made its ruling? Yes, Your Honor, and the trial court knew about it uh, when it made its ruling. Well, the district court had a, had a proffer, but the district court had not heard witnesses. It had not heard evidence. But the, the, the focus here is on the reasonableness of the state court's factual findings. Sure, but the reasonableness of factual findings depends on what the evidence is that can go in on the issue of reasonableness. And there's a universe of difference between a proffer of evidence which the the district court says, well, I'll assume that, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the actual presentation of witnesses, perhaps including Landrigan himself, which the court actually hears. 
you know, you, sometimes you get a lot more impressed by real evidence than by assumptions you make for the sake of argument. And that seems to me a, a world of difference. I don't necessarily disagree, except that we're, the, the focus has to be on what the claim was that was raised in the state post-conviction proceeding. And if okay, the only but, thing — but the, the — the, I, I guess on that point, uh, my, my, own, my, my only reason for raising this with you is on that point, it's not enough to say, well, the district court assumed this, or for that matter, the state trial court assumed this. Well, the, the state That's not the same thing as putting in the evidence. Except in this case, we certainly had the trial court had presided over the sentencing and had seen Landrigan in person and was uniquely qualified to make a credibility assessment regarding the, the point that Landrigan made in his affidavit, that I would have allowed presentation of genetic predisposition. May I ask you what may be an awfully elementary and stupid question, but it seems to me that uh, there's no question about the facts of what he said, and you can interpret him as saying, I, I, I don't want any mitigating evidence in it. But isn't it clear that the waiver of the right to put in any mitigating evidence at a capital sentencing hearing is a constitutional right of very important dimensions? And can that right be waived if the record does not show whether or not he knew the full right of, uh, that is available to every defendant in a capital case? Namely, he'd been advised by his counsel he could put in all sorts of stuff. But is there anything to show that there was that kind of waiver here on the face of the record? There, there's not a specific colloquy but that But isn't through. it as a matter of law an ineffective waiver? No, Isn't the Ninth Circuit dead right, not factually, but just as a matter of law? You cannot waive this right unless the record shows that he's fully advised of the scope of the right that he's waiving. Well, first, there, there's no authority that I'm aware of that would require any type of a specific colloquy. And I think this record is — It's new to me also. I never heard of it. Uh, and I, th I think that would be — is, But why should it be — why should there be a less complete colloquy for this kind of waiver for, than for a guilty plea itself? Now, maybe there's no authority on the point, but isn't it absolutely obvious? Well, I, I think the reason there's no need for one is because a defendant can come in, and if he really believes that his waiver was not knowing and voluntary, he has an opportunity to pursue that type of claim in a post-conviction proceeding. And he can come in and proffer whatever evidence he, he wants to proffer, if, in fact, that's his claim that he did. Some, some kind of waivers, like waiver of the right to counsel, we do indeed require a colloquy because a defendant is not likely to know what the consequences of foregoing counsel are. So the judge discusses with him and, and you know, points out what a, what a significant decision that is. But it doesn't take a whole lot of smarts to answer yes or no the question, uh, you know, do you agree that your counsel should not introduce any mitigating evidence? I mean, it, it's clear on, on its face. I would agree, Your Honor, and I think... Well, doesn't that assume that the defendant knows what mitigating evidence is? And this defendant, I suppose, wants to show, I thought mitigating evidence was just going to be what the, these two relatives were going to testify to. It It was really much more if my counsel had investigated, and that's not a knowing waiver. I, I think that type of argument was belied by what, what happened at the time of sentencing. Well, unless the argument is, and maybe this is what the other side is going to argue, that, that when you make a waiver of all mitigating evidence, knowing, as, as any, any person knows who's, who's reached that far in the criminal process what mitigating evidence is, uh, you must know, in fact, all of the elements of mitigation that could have been introduced, which will almost never be the case so that it's always possible, after waiving 
the right to introduce mitigating evidence, uh, to come into the court uh, a year later and say, oh, my goodness, here's a sort of mitigating evidence I didn't know about at the time. My grandfather was a criminal. I didn't realize that at the time. And now I want, you know, therefore my waiver was uninformed, and, you know, we go back to square one and try the case again. That, that would always be possible, wouldn't it? Well, I agree, Your Honor, and, and it's because the nature of mitigation is so open-ended, uh, it would be difficult to explain precisely and have a waiver of every conceivable item of mitigation. And so are you, are you, in effect, then saying that the waiver does not need to be a knowing waiver in the sense that it needs to be based upon an appreciation of all the possible mitigation evidence that in this case might come in. Are you saying it need not be knowing in that sense? I think a defendant needs to understand the nature, the basic nature and concept of mitigation, but this case provides a good example. Well, yeah, but you're not answering my question. I, we, we all agree that he needs to understand the basic concept of mitigation. Does his waiver have to be a knowing one in the sense that I just described, or doesn't it? What's your position? It does not have to, it does not have to be knowing as to every conceivable aspect of mitigation. And, and it will nonetheless bind him if he comes in later and says, look, I accept the fact that it's my burden to show at this point that my waiver was not a knowing one and that there is mitigating evidence that I would have let in. Are you saying that he simply, as a matter of law, cannot say that, uh, or cannot be heard to say that? Well, he, he is bound by that, Your Honor, and if I could. So, so the answer to my question is yes. yes. As a matter of law, he cannot do what he is trying to do here. Yes. And, okay. and Your Honor, I, I think here we have a situation where the defendant is now trying to proffer evidence that is inconsistent with what counsel was trying to present at the time of sentencing. But what you, are, what you are saying is that it was sufficient when he said, I don't want my lawyer to introduce mitigating evidence. And the trial court said, do you know what that means? And he said, yeah. And yes. that doesn't have to be uh, fleshed out at all, unlike a Rule 11 colloquy, to see if he really understands. It's, she's just asked, do you know what that means? And he says, yeah, and that's the end of it. I think that is sufficient, Your Honor. And, and again, here, he's now raising this claim of genetic predisposition at the sentencing memorandum that counsel submitted, attempted to portray Landrigan as someone who was basically a good person who committed this crime because he was under the influence of alcohol and drugs. Uh, this, this new type of evidence, and the, the sentencing memorandum, and, and you'll see that, uh, that Landrigan had, had been evaluated by, by an expert who had said that he didn't have any mental deficiencies. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Mr. Verrilli. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Um, I'd like to begin by clearing up what exactly we did and didn't argue with respect to waiver and what exactly is and isn't before this Court uh, on that set of issues in our judgment. I then would like to spend a couple of minutes on what I think the Ninth Circuit did and what effect uh, that would have on this Court's disposition of the case. And if there's any time remaining, I'd like to turn to the question of whether uh, we have asserted colorable claims that warrant uh, an evidentiary hearing here, which is all that we're asking for. Now, with respect to this question of whether we pursued or didn't pursue waiver, I'm afraid counsel for the state is just wrong about this, and it's important to understand how this comes up. We asserted a claim for ineffective assistance of counsel, deficient performance, and prejudice. 
The state asserted as a defense to that claim, no, no, he's waived. And the trial judge, the, the, the state habeas judge in the state post-conviction ruling, agreed with that, said, well, yes, he's waived. We then filed a petition for rehearing in which we said, no, you can't rely on that defense because it's got to be a knowing and intelligent waiver under Johnson against Zerps. That's at page 92 of the joint appendix. That motion for rehearing was denied without any uh, further comment. We then took a petition to review to the Arizona Supreme Court. That's also in the joint appendix, and I believe the page site is 101 or 102, in which we specifically argued that you can't look to this so-called waiver as a, uh, as a defense to our claim of ineffective assistance because it wasn't knowing and intelligent. Now, in the state's response to our petition, which unfortunately is not in the joint appendix but is in the record, the state says, no, this waiver is binding, and furthermore, you're procedurally defaulted because this issue was decided on direct review. But the one thing the state does not say is that you raised this Johnson against Zerbst issue too late and it can't be considered. We then went Excuse to. Excuse me, I'm, I'm looking at page 92 of the joint appendix. I, I, don't, I don't see what. I may have the wrong page well, reference, Justice Scalia. It's rather Scalia. important, don't you think? I'm sorry, I will, I will find it for Your Honor. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry for the delay here. Um, yeah, I, I, the motion for rehearing is, I'm sorry, 99, and on 102 is where we raise it, and then subsequently, and uh, then subsequently we raise it. Uh, is, is, is that effective? Uh, does, does the Court have to entertain a motion for rehearing? Well, it doesn't have Isn't to, but your the, obligation to raise it in your original petition well, uh, rather well, than in a motion for rehearing? There's no, but the, the point is that's not, a, when we took this to the Arizona Supreme Court, that's not an argument that the State made in opposition to our raising Johnson against Serps. Then when we got to Federal District Court, we raised this again, this exact argument in Federal District Court, and the State in Federal District Court didn't object that we had failed to raise this appropriately in the State proceedings. We took it to the Ninth Circuit. They didn't raise the objection that we'd failed to raise it appropriately in State proceedings. The first time that question has even been raised here is in the reply brief on the merits in this Court. And I think that's tied to the next point I want to make, which is significant, which is that this, as the case comes to this Court, the Ninth Circuit has ruled that we have met the requirements of 2254E2 and are therefore entitled to an evidentiary hearing. Now, what the State is essentially saying is, well, no, you really aren't entitled to an evidentiary hearing on this set of issues because you didn't raise them adequately in the State courts. Uh, and if it just a, an evidentiary hearing on his biological predetermination to commit violent crime or an evidentiary hearing on the waiver question? On both, Your Honor. Well, and why, I mean, the Court on page A-17 ruled that there was no waiver. So why would they then send it back for an evidentiary me, hearing on waiver? Let me move to that, if I could, because I do think that's significant. I think the, the, the Court has elucidated the two potential readings of the Ninth Circus decision. seems to us, as we, as we prepare this case on the merits, that the reality is that the two, that the issue of performance and the issue of waiver are tied together. Because if it turns out after a hearing that counsel did perform an effective job, a diligent job of preparing investigation, and did 
uh, instruct the, the client as to what the mitigation evidence was, then you'd view the waiver in a different light than, of course, you would if the counsel hadn't. So we acknowledge here that the proper disposition of this case ought to be a remand for an evidentiary hearing. That but, I think but, that, that, but that wasn't your assertion, uh, even in this motion for a hearing. It wasn't that he didn't know what he was giving up. It was rather the sentencing tra- transcript, you say, does not establish that Petitioner knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligently waived his right to present mitigating evidence. Rather, it shows that Petitioner gave up that right without thought, in the heat of anger at, and at frustration with his attorney during that particular proceeding. Uh, right. We're trying to establish there, Your Honor, that we — But that, that was a factual matter, best, uh, best disposed of by the judge who was present at the time. And he didn't think it was in the heat of anger. He did think that it was a valid waiver. Now you're raising a totally different issue. You're saying, oh, he can't waive validly without knowing all the elements of mitigation that the waiver might embrace. That wasn't the argument you were making here. Your Honor, I want to respond directly to Your Honor's question. If you just permit me one more thought about the Ninth Circuit, I'll turn right back to that. So, in other words, we are making a more modest request for relief here, which is, affirmance of the judgment sending back for an evidentiary hearing, but with a recognition that the evidentiary hearing ought to deal with the issue of waiver, which should be understood to be left open. I think that, that we're, we're conceding something here, that waiver ought to be left open and not definitively resolved. It was premature to definitively resolve that against the State without an inquiry. Now, turning to Your Honor's point, the uh, — with respect to — whether there was a waiver here or not and what the state judge did or didn't do, something very significant here that I think the state's argument just overlooks. There's an assumption in the state's argument that Landrigan's conduct at the sentencing hearing itself was a waiver and considered to be a waiver. But if one looks at the transcript of that hearing, and this is a a, a D to the appendix to the petition, and beginning at page D4, uh, D, D3 is where the colloquy occurs, where this alleged waiver happened. The very next thing that occurs, the very next thing that occurs is the trial judge says, okay, I want to hear from the mitigation witnesses. And then the mitigation witnesses say, well, we're not going to testify. Then the very next thing that occurs is the trial judge says, well, I want a proffer of what they would have said. Then when, then, when all that's said and done, the trial judge says to the lawyer, and this is at D15, uh, uh, have you got anything else? And the lawyer says, nope, Your Honor, that's all I've got. All I've got is what's in the sentencing memo and these two witnesses. Then the judge proceeds to pass sentence. And that's it. The particularly important pages are D20 and D21. And on those pages, you will see that what the judge does is not treat Mr. Landrigan's statements as a waiver, because if she had treated those statements as a waiver, what she would have said is, well, here's the, here's the aggravation case. Mr. Landrigan has waived mitigation. He has a right to do that. No, this I, is belt and suspenders. That's all. The, 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 I don't think any judge likes to decide a case just on the basis of waiver. This judge is saying he waived it, and even if he hadn't waived it, there's nothing there. I respect because he wasn't he wasn't bringing in at this point the uh, biological proclivity. By the way, biological proclivity to to violence is a mitigating factor, or rather than an aggravating factor. Let me address your second question first, and then your first question. I think that that, uh, in two senses, 
does not accurately represent what this mitigation case presented to the State Court and presented to the Federal Court is all about. With respect even to his affidavit, which I don't think fairly under Arizona procedure can define the full scope of his claim, but with respect to that affidavit alone, what it says is not genetic predisposition. It says the biological component of violence. That's the language that Mr. Landry's affidavit uses. Well, but the, the prior paragraph says it's because of uh, the history of his biological grandfather, biological brother, and biological child. That suggests to me that it's a genetic uh, claim. And, and but uh, it, one other thing it does that's very significant, Mr. Chief Justice, is it also says that these witnesses can attest to the use of alcohol and drugs by the biological mother when Landrigan is in utero. Well, but he knew about that. He knew about that mitigating evidence at the trial but because, yeah. the, because his uh, biological mother was there. Yes, but what he's saying that he would have agreed to seems to me the only fair reading of this affidavit, which, again, I don't think fairly defines the full scope of what he's allowed to proceed with under Arizona procedure. But with respect to this affidavit, he's saying, well, if you had had an expert who could have come in and given testimony about fetal alcohol syndrome and the organic brain damage and other impairments that it causes, I would have cooperated with that. And that's really significant because if you look at page D21 of the appendix to the petition, how could that be helpful to him if he doesn't allow his biological mother to testify about drug and alcohol abuse? What use would the expert be? Because all the the biological mother would have had to do was to give that information to the expert. That's a routine uh, matter for experts to gather factual information and and simulate it into an expert opinion and then provide it to the court. That could have happened easily here. And and I think it's very significant because on page 21 you'll see that the trial judge makes a fundamental error about this exact issue. She says, well, I'll grant this, I'll take the mother's testimony as a proffer. I'll consider the possibility of uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, but all fetal alcohol syndrome establishes is that the kid will also have a predisposition to addiction. So your assumption is that the the defendant would have been happy to have his biological mother uh, talk with the expert, but was unwilling to have his biological mother say the same thing in court? Sure, and, and I, I don't think there's anything unreasonable about that. Those are very different experiences, but the, the — Well, I, I don't understand. It seems unreasonable to me. What, he, he was trying to spare his mother, what, the, the, the nervousness of testifying in court? Is that the, what he had in the, mind? If I, it, the — whatever else happened, the trial judge here considered this evidence of mitigation and did a weighing. And the, and the key point I want to make sure I make here is that, therefore — any evidence that this lawyer had prepared, an expert on fetal alcohol syndrome most prominently, and any other evidence, the trial lawyer could have proffered at the time and had considered at the time and had weighed at the time by this trial judge. So, and that's a claim of prejudice, it seems to me. Even if one grants, even if one assumes, and, I, and we dispute it, and I'd like to talk about that, but even if one assumes uh, that there is a finding and we can't do anything about it, that Landrigan would not have cooperated in the presentation of any mitigation. Counsel, do you think it's possible to have a valid waiver uh, of the presentation of mitigation, mitigating evidence? Or is it always possible that some additional evidence would be, come up and say, well, if I had known that, I wouldn't have waived it? 
I don't think there's a yes or no answer to that question. You can't give a yes answer to whether it's yes. ever possible? Yes, it's possible. Okay. Certainly possible. But I think — but the — I don't <clears> — <throat> I want to make sure I don't leave any implication that the, that the rule we're asking for here is going to open the door to lots of claims, because I don't think it does for two sets of reasons. One is a procedural set of reasons, and that's the — and that I would refer the Court to the Blackledge against Allison decision that if — that it's not going to be enough in every case for you to plead an adequate claim and then jump right to an evidentiary hearing. As the, as the Court said in Allison, the District Court has available to it a number of tools that it can use to test the claim before granting an evidentiary hearing. So there's a limitation there. Now, substitute do it concretely, Mr. Verrilli, for this case. The, the defendant is being rather obstreperous and says, I don't want any mitigating evidence. I'm a really bad guy, and that's how he's trying to portray himself. What you said, and you allowed for the possibility that there could be a knowing waiver of mitigation. What would have had to transpire in this case to make it a knowing waiver? Right. I think that's important, and hopefully it will help explain why we think that this is a, a narrow — that the, the rule we're asking for here is a narrow one, and, and it's not going to open the door to lots of claims. It's clear that just like the waiver of any other fundamental constitutional right to a fair trial, the de- defendant's got to understand what mitigation means. Uh, he's got to understand its significance in the proceeding. He's well, he certainly understood that. He said, if you want to give me the death penalty, bring it on. I'm ready for it. The purpose of mitigating evidence is to prevent the imposition of the death penalty. And, he says, bring it on. And he needs to be assisted by competent counsel. That's a consistent theme of this Court's decisions under Johnson against Serbst. And so if you have a situation in which you have documented that the, that the, the client understands what mitigation is, and frankly, I don't think, with all due respect, Mr. Chief Justice, this is the kind of documentation that ought to suffice. But even if you had that, even if you documented that the defendant understood it, and even if you documented that the defendant clearly uh, waived it, and you documented that that was done with <coughs> the counsel's assistance, then it seems to me it's going to be very hard for a habeas petitioner to plead something that's going to get past. Why isn't this the type of documentation uh, that would be sufficient? He understands what the consequence of not putting mitigating evidence on is going to be. Well, because I think there isn't clarity at all that he understands what mitigating evidence is, what the full scope of it is, and how it could have and, and He's present in the court while they're making a proffer of this sort of mitigating evidence. The, the judge, who's quite careful, saying, okay, he doesn't want the evidence. I want to know what it is. And they call the two witnesses. And all that this defendant does is undermine his lawyer's effort to present the mitigating. But again, Mr. Chief Justice, at the time, the trial judge didn't treat that as a waiver. And so I don't think you can cut off his ability to litigate an ineffective assistance claim years later on the ground that, in fact, well, are you claiming a that Are you claiming that his attorney did not adequately represent him at the sentencing hearing with respect to the question of waiver? In other words, when, that the, the attorney should have insisted that the judge go through some kind of more, uh, more comprehensive colloquy there, with him about waiver, inform him of certain things about what he was giving up? Are you making that claim? I think, Justice Alito, we're making a different, a, a couple of different claims. Not that claim, but a couple of different claims. One is, and it pertains particularly to mental health expert, that there, that 
even if Landrigan behaved in exactly the way he, in fact, behaved in the, in the counterfactual world in which he had received adequate representation, that the mental health expert testimony could have been proffered to the Court had it been prepared and developed, would have been considered, and could have made a critically important difference and for precisely the reason that Justice Ginsburg's question suggested, which is that he's obviously behaving badly in this situation. What the trial court read out of that is, well, he's an amoral person. What the mental health testimony would give you is an alternative frame of reference for making a reasoned moral judgment about this guy and, and, could, and could be critically important in explaining that behavior. So even within the confines of accepting that the, that the world would have unfolded exactly the way it did, it was ineffective to have dropped the ball on preparing that kind of evidence. Then it's also ineffective in Excuse the — Excuse me, I'm, I'm not following you. You mean the, the mental health experts' testimony could have gone to whether the judge should have accepted the waiver? No. No, I'm no, to the basic, what you were to, saying. To the basic Sorry. weighing of mitigation, which the judge undertook based on all proffered evidence. Then, beyond that, with, we're making an argument that the waiver that — even if you're going to consider that a waiver — you can't consider it a knowing and voluntary waiver, a knowing and intelligent waiver, supported adequately by the efforts of counsel. And isn't that a separate question, whether it's a knowing and intelligent waiver? Isn't the question here whether he was prejudiced, which is a question of fact, which is a question of whether, had he been informed of the possibility of mitigation evidence relating to a history of family violence, he would have persisted in blocking the admission of any mitigation evidence. Isn't that the issue? Not whether it was knowing and intelligent. That would be a separate legal question. No, I don't think that's the issue with all due respect, Justice Alito. I think the test under Strickland is whether there was deficient performance, which we think we have a very powerful record of here, and then a reasonable probability that the outcome would have been different. And I think the inquiry here that the state habeas judge is undertaking is uh, the, the reasonable probability inquiry. That seems to me to be a mixed question that requires yes, you to — it's a mixed question. But if the, if the Post-Conviction Relief Act Court found, as a matter of fact, that even had he known about the possibility of this type of mitigation evidence, he would have persisted in refusing to cooperate. If, they, if there was such a finding, and I know you dispute it, and if you were granted a hearing, is it not true you would have to disprove that by clear and convincing evidence? Well — Taking our first argument to the side, our first argument, which I've been discussing about what happened at the hearing, I think the, with respect to that argument, the answer is no. That argument stands without any, uh, without any need to disprove the, the factual finding. If you assume it is a factual finding, we don't concede that. But if it is a factual finding, then yes, we would have to disprove it by clear and convincing evidence. But we think we can do that, and all we're asking for is a hearing to enable us the opportunity. So what, what is the standard? I ask that because I, I, I'm not certain uh, from what I'd heard previously. Uh, I think the State was saying that the only issue that was raised before the State proceeding, collateral, the State collateral post-sentencing proceeding, was that you wanted uh, to present evidence that he had a biological gene, a defaulty gene or something like that. When I've looked at this, it's on page 88. The motion filed says we have two claims. One claim is the claim that was just mentioned. It says uh, that uh, uh, the, about, from the biological mother and use of drugs and alcohol. Where, and where, where say, are you quoting from? Sorry? Joint Appendix 88. And then there's a second one on page 88. It says, in addition to failing to investigate these alternative sources, 
we also want to say that counsel failed to explore additional grounds. That was the sister. And the sister was going to testify that the mother, the foster mother, Mrs. Landrigan, abused alcohol, and she has a whole list of things in her affidavit. So is that still before us? I mean, isn't that yes, something it, you want to argue? It, abso- with what? it absolutely is. All right. If thank it is. You, thank you, Your Honor, for bringing then, me back right. to that question. All right. Then, then the claim would be this. You want a hearing in which you're going to present the sister, the Landrigans, what they did, what the school said, what happened to him at school, all things that are there in Affidavit 5, which was in the state court, and the biological gene. And you want to say, am I right? I don't want to put words in your mouth. And you want to say that given all this, had this been looked into and presented to the defendant, the defendant would not have said, don't present any of that. It would have been presented, and it would have made a difference. What is that what you want to do? Yes, All right. with, with the, one addition, which is that right. fetal alcohol syndrome expert testimony is very important. All right, yes. with that, too. Now, the st- what the Ninth Circuit said is, we'll give you a hearing. We don't know if you're right or wrong. What's the standard for giving you the hearing? I, I on ex- A lot of things in the law aren't always written down exactly, and, and I was under the impression that trial judges often give hearings on what you might call seat of the pants. I'd like to hear more about it. I've, I've been on appellate courts where, rightly or wrongly, uh, we've said, I just think I'd like to know more about this. I can't quite understand it. Let's have a hearing, and we're going to tell the trial judge to do it. Mr. Varelli, I thought you already standard? conceded that the Ninth Circuit did not ask for a hearing on this question of whether he had waived, effectively waived, mitigating evidence. No, I, I That isn't what the Ninth Circuit sent but, back for. Well, but the, it found that he had not waived mitigating evidence. So right. what and, and to that, to I'm that, not actually talking about waiver. My question was just generally what I asked. What is the standard there on whether you'd get a hearing? Justice Scalia, would you permit me to answer that question? I'll come back Whatever to you, Your Honor. Thank you. The, the, with respect to the standard, there are two things that we have to show, and if we do, we're, in, we're entitled to a hearing. One is that we're not disentitled under the analysis under Section 2254E2, as explicated in the Court's Michael Williams decision. We showed that. The, the Court below found it. It was not raised in the cert petition. We pointed out in the brief in opposition that it wasn't raised. They said nothing about it. That's established as the case comes to the Court. Got Wait, what, what is established? That you've satisfied E2? That, that E2 is not a bar to us proceeding to an evidentiary hearing. Why? Because you satisfy it or because it doesn't apply? Because... We, there's no lack of diligence here that would trigger us meeting the heightened requirements of E2, and therefore uh, it doesn't apply to bar us. That's the theory. Now, with the other thing we have to show. I'm sorry, you just have sorry, to bear with me. So you're saying you satisfy E2AII because there's no lack of diligence. Don't you also have to satisfy E2B? which is to show that no reasonable fact-finder would have found him guilty? In other words, no. There was subject to no, Your Honor, that's correct. As, as, as we understand the, the Michael Williams' decision interpreting that provision, Your Honor, those requirements only kick in in a situation where you haven't shown diligence, and therefore you're at fault, and you can overcome your fault by meeting those heightened standards. They don't apply in a situation where you have been diligent, and therefore you're not, you, you're, you, they don't apply to you at all. Um, with respect to the, the what else we 
with respect to what else we have to show, we have to show that, and this is the Townsend standard, which no, nothing in the passage of EDPA changed, that we've alleged facts which have proven entitled us to relief. Those are the two things we have to show, and we've done both of those things. And the district now, court has substantial discretion in determining whether or not to grant that hearing on that basis. And the Ninth Circuit, and, and, and <clears throat> it seems to us actually, Your Honor, under Townsend, in that situation, hearing's mandatory. The district court would have discretion under the habeas, uh, under habeas practice to hold a hearing as a discretionary matter, even in a situation where we haven't shown a mandatory entitlement to it. So there is discretion there. But there, there, there part of that discretion is, uh, and, you, and you've been careful to say this, uh, that there's a likelihood uh, of, a, of a different result. So yes. Yes. And so it, it, it seems to me that, that that is a difficult part. Of, of, of your case based on this evidence. Well, but I think that, that what I think is important there is that that issue ought to be decided after the evidentiary hearing when you know what it's going to be. And it's, it's premature to decide that prejudice. Well, we know what the, the fetal alcohol testimony is going to be. Well, but you, we, And we can make a determination. The Court of Appeals could make a determination, or the District Court could make a determination how, how likely that would be to affect the result. Well, they, they could, but it seems to me not until you actually hear the expert testimony, and then we have all of the other testimony that Justice Breyer detailed that you'd want to consider. I, I do want to try to come back, Justice Scalia, to your point. Yes, we acknowledge that the Ninth Circuit went too far in the way Your Honor described. But you don't get from that conclusion to the conclusion that you ought to grant the relief that the State is requesting here, which is a reversal and directing dismissal of the petition. Because to get to that, you have to show that there's no set of circumstances under which we could prevail. We're, our position is an intermediate one, which is that the right answer here is that the judgment to send it back for an evidentiary hearing was correct and should be affirmed. What but do you do with, um, in following up on Justice Kennedy's question, the dissent uh, took the position in the Ninth Circuit that the mitigating value of any proven, I'm quoting A24, genetic predisposition for violence would not have outweighed its aggravating tendency to suggest that Landrigan was undeterrable and even from prison would present a future danger. I think the answer is that that is an uh, an inappropriately truncated assessment of the mitigation case and a wrongly focused assessment of the mitigation case, which ought to focus on the the troubled history and the fetal alcohol syndrome, which provides a medical mental health explanation for his conduct, which is quite different, and that uh, and that so that's what ought to be balanced. But that was presented in the state court proceedings. That's not correct. The, the, The biological mother's uh, abuse the, of alcohol. The fact that she used abuse, that she abused alcohol, but not the medical expert testimony explaining what effects that would have. That's precisely the thing that wasn't there, and that was the big problem. And so I do think that that, and, and that's why we need an evidentiary hearing to develop that. This, this weighing, by the so way. So you think that state trial court had no familiarity with fetal alcohol syndrome well, and the effect? Well, if you look at page D21, Mr. Chief Justice, what you'll see is actually uh, a, a proof in the transcript that she had no familiarity because she said in, on page D21, well, all it does is predispose you to being an addict yourself. But the fetal alcohol syndrome is a much, much broader uh, set of impairments that can bear directly on uh, one's, <coughs> uh, 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 one's moral culpability. If I could just I, say — I have just one, one uh, other question on a different matter. In uh, Judge Bias's dissent, uh, uh, just based this in, uh, he, he quotes a letter from the petitioner. The petitioner does not want to proceed with this appeal and wants the execution scheduled. Uh, can you comment on sure. that? Sure. Um, 
what happened there was that the Ninth Circuit, upon receiving this letter, contacted counsel for Mr. Landrigan, asked him, uh, asked them to go visit him in prison and find out what's going on. They did so. They reported back to the Ninth Circuit that Mr. Landrigan did, in fact, want to proceed with the appeals. He has continued to want to proceed with the appeals, sign the IFP papers, etc. And there, it turns out there were neurological problems that were afflicting him that were very serious at the time, and everyone thinks the explanation was that. So that's what happened. But if I could just say in conclusion, just remind the Court what it said in the first miller L decision, that even in the world of habeas, there is a difference between deference and abdication. And in a situation like this one, in which the State Court has not afforded an evidentiary hearing and has not allowed the development of the evidence that bears directly on Mr. Landrigan's claims, it would be a form of abdication to hold that he can be conclusively barred from proceeding further even to an evidentiary hearing on the basis of the present record. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Verrilli. The case is submitted.